Well, hello, folks, and welcome or welcome back to Supporting Champions. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm a performance scientist by trade and having developed athletes over the last 25 years, but also developing teams in the unforgiving world of high performance sport. Now applying those lessons to the wider world, still in sport, but also in business, education and arts. Anyone who's really chasing an ambitious goal and really wants to create high performance, but do it well. Normally, we've got a, a guest on the show that I'm interviewing or developing some insights from people who've been there and done it, people who've been a driving force or people who've researched high performance in real depth. So in this episode, it's just me. Sorry about that. Uh, but I wanted to take an opportunity to share some perspectives really about developing the next generation of performance people. It's very much a, a passion of ours. Over the last couple of years, we've been applying what we've learnt from elite sport into other sports, but also into business, into education. And one of the areas that we keep hearing about and that we have observed in elite sport is the lack of skilled graduates and people asking for our help to develop people once they start work. This was a massive focus for us in the high performance system when I was at the Olympic Association and at the English Institute of Sport and a number of high performance institutes and teams still racking their brains and working on this particular project of developing performance people. The origin of this particular story for me was the post-Beijing Olympic period. So 2008 for the British team was enormously successful and we came away with just a huge number of medals. So everyone thought that this was a wonderful performance. Everything must have been perfect. And then we were looking up at this, the, 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 looking up at the, the mountain of 2012 and thinking, OK, we're on track. But actually it was quite a difficult time in that post-Beijing period because a lot of performance directors, a lot of coaches, a lot of athletes, a lot of staff but the, from the teams behind the team were really looking around saying, you know what, our team working has got to be so much better. That's when I started to take these calls from a whole raft of people just saying, look, they, they, we've got some good staff that know lots, but actually what we need is a much higher level of of professional skill that ability to work with other people, to work between the edges in the messy, ambiguous, pressured world of high performance, that character and that professional craft really gets exposed. And that's what we got an awful lot of feedback on. And so that kick-started a, a new philosophy that if we expect these athletes to be high performers themselves, then they must expect to have a high performance team around them. And that was the shift in philosophy that we were just thinking, okay, well, we, we're pretty good at understanding what it takes to produce an outstanding rowing, cycling, long jumping performance. And we understand what the determinants of performance are in order to succeed. But what we then start to throw that lens back onto ourselves and really think about how can we make sure that we're getting sophisticated about what it takes for us to be high-performing people too. So the advice that I'll share in this episode is very much distilling some of those key bits of advice down, but very much builds upon and extends on my letter to the 15,000, which is the which is our most read blog. So it's been read over 150,000 times. It really hit a nerve. I wrote it in 2015. 
at, at the peak of me pulling my hair out about trying to find people sat at that interview desk and thinking, you know what, I think this person in front of me is actually really good, but they're not showing it. And actually, I think they've had it drummed out of them by universities. They lack for any real skill. They have a good amount of knowledge. They don't know how to use it. So I'll build upon my letter to the 15,000 and this episode will outline what I think can make the difference at three key stages in development. The first one is when you're studying. So when actually you're locked into the studies, what else can you do to extend your readiness to work and be effective in work? And then a particular phase, almost a transition. So when people are graduating, the, what are the, the key things that they need to do to position themselves to actually acquire a job? And then the third phase is that early career. What are, what, what are the demands? What's the problem that we so often see when people are in early phases of working? And what are my top tips for, for each of those different areas? If you're at one of these stages, then, then listen in. Uh, I've got some top tips for each of those different levels. Uh, if you're ahead, then you might want to consider sharing this episode with your networks to be part of this movement because there's a problem and the gap is widening even further for young people locked into education, spending a lot of money and then coming out with a degree particularly in sports science, we really observe this. They come out with a degree, but very little skill that is is attractive to an employer. So let's dive in. So I'm going to start with the letter to the 15,000. So this was first posted in 2015 and it's had 150,000 views uh, across 27 different countries. So that's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm humbled that people have tuned into it, but it clearly did touch a nerve. It was generally written for sports science students aspiring to work in the field of elite sport, but the lessons translate to grassroots sport, to coaching, health and exercise. In fact, it's been discussed and applied in a host of different fields that are keen to discuss vocational training and being ready to work. Uh, I'll be absolutely honest with you, it was that written out of that frustration due to a lack of readiness of the graduate pool that we were observing in the elite sport environment. And I do not think this is going away fast. And so whilst I would say that much of the responsibility lies at the door of university departments to do much more, I appreciate equally that university departments are facing uncertain times. They have pressure for research, for operational efficiencies, bums on seats, all these sorts of things. But I believe that the, the next generation will demand much more vocational training. But in the interim, uh, this letter to the 15,000 is, is focused at those people ready to take action. So you can sit there and moan all you like uh, about coming out with a degree but without the skills. This is written for those students who think, actually, you know what, I want to do something about it. I update it each year because I think that the work environment is shifting a number of in a number of different ways. So here's the letter. Dear budding sports scientist, uh, so you have enrolled in a sports science degree. You start this week. Exciting times ahead then. So what lies ahead for you at the end of your studies? Well, I believe that sport is more important than ever. And in turbulent times, there's every chance that we will question whether sport is actually valuable. 
but we don't see a downward turn in interest in sport. The march forward for more seems to be insatiable. The challenge is that if you fancy a career in the world of sports performance, and my observation from 20 years of interviewing thousands of graduates, reviewing tens of thousands of job applications, that the gap between what sport requires from professionals and what graduates are equipped with isn't narrowing, it's widening. In 2019, this is in part due to the rapid evolution of performance sport and equally a lack of development in the courses that train graduates over the last 15 years. So if you've just enrolled on a degree in sports science or sports therapy or something sports related, then today, again, like the last few years, I'm writing to you to tell you that there are careers for you at the end of the tunnel, a chance to work with the best sports people in the world. But I'm writing to tell you that you need to take ownership of your destiny, go further than paying your tuition fees, Stud- studying hard and getting good grades, and invest time and effort in your own development. So here's the ABC of where you are at at the moment. A, you're in the right place to learn the foundation of knowledge. B, you're unlikely to be taught and therefore acquire the skills required to work in sport while you're studying at university. And C, you now have a choice to either do enough to get through your course and get some good grades or create a better future for yourself. Those are the choices that you have. Do enough or or make it happen for yourself. The fact of the matter is that if you want, and I mean really want, not just fancy it because it sounds all right and it just sounds like an attractive thing to do, if you want to work with the best, the competition pool is massive. The sports science is the most popular degree course in the UK with 82 institutions offering to teach with 115 specialist routes. Estimates show that there's somewhere between nine and 15,000 will exit sports science undergraduate courses each year. Global estimates put this figure uh, between 75 and 100,000 sports science students at the undergraduate level. Added to this, the inflationary increase of more and more students are taking a, a master's course in the area. That means by the time you get round to collecting your distinction in a, in a master's, you'll be amongst 1,200 graduates each year in the UK, 30 to 45,000 globally. So the pool does not seem to be getting any smaller. If anything, it's becoming more concentrated. So I write to tell you what I think you can do about it. Firstly, get a sense of perspective on what you are about to embark on. Ideally, your degree course will offer a work placement of some sort. These offer you a real advantage, but you will need to go further. The icing on the cake here will be that if your course requires you to not only learn about a topic, concept or theory, but require you to apply it to a real person or a population or a real world setting before then processing it by either writing it up, discussing it or presenting it for your assessment. So often courses just offer, learn, write up. Here, what I'm suggesting is that gold medal looks like learn, apply and synthesise. Not all courses do this. Many will teach, then assess. I personally think that this is outdated, no longer enough in a big bad world that needs you to actually do the do. I see this most apparently exposed at recruitment, interview for applied sports science positions. 
the vocational skills of application are far too commonly lacking. So if you cruise through your course, there's a risk that you could be resplendent with knowledge, but not know how to use your knowledge. But really, the course providers have made their offering and you have chosen it. So now it's up to you to make the goddamn most of it. Printing the blog off, waving it in front of your head of school's face and stomping your feet and squealing, it's not fair, spoon feed me, I want to hold a gold medal, is unlikely to help you with your chosen path. You also have to recognise that sports science offers very high employability rates, but at the same time, very few courses are set up to offer you specific preparation for the demands of working with elite performers, which is a very narrow niche and small proportion of the sector. But I would say this applies to just simply working with people. But sports science courses are typically generic, i.e. multidisciplinary, ranging from knowledge, research, application, exercise, health, sport, the combination of which is a real strength. The courses that you're now signed up to could lead to a career in PE, teaching, leisure, tourism, research, banking, pharmaceuticals, medical sales, grassroots sports, coaching, the non-technical side of elite sport. The strength of generic training comes in its breadth. And if I had one reflection from my undergraduate days that I think would have better prepared me for my career ahead is that I wish I had read more broadly. When you're working with elite athletes, there are some clear opportunities to delve into your specialism, but the majority of your work is multifaceted. So multidisciplinary thinking is critical. You therefore need a broad knowledge base more than you need narrow depth. Sports science is already set up to provide you with a wide perspective. With these background perspectives out of the way, now for the recommendation, one that stood me in good stead to pass on to aspiring applied scientists and one that I would wager will not go out of date for a millennia to come. That's that's pretty confident, isn't it? Um, But I, I, I see it working time and time again. I'm confident these work for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm recommending that you start doing the role that you want to do And secondly, not many people will have the initiative, the guile and the tenacity to follow this advice. This gives you an advantage. This can differentiate you from others, leap out from the pack and to show that you have what it takes to be a brilliant applied sports scientist. So in very simple terms, from day one of your studies, you have to get out there and bring your knowledge to life. You have to track test your newfound information You have to find ways to communicate this knowledge to coaches, to your parents, to your professors, to all walks of life. So what is it that I recommend that you actually do to acquire real life experience? Well, first of all, I would say club together with like minded students to discuss, debate and critically question what you have read and been taught. You have got to repel against the idea if it is published, it is fact That's a dogma and that will hold you back. Secondly, get out there and test your own mind and body against what you have learnt. So this means getting stuck into some training. Don't prescribe training to people unless you've done that type of training. It creates a real connection with athletes or clients that if you can talk about what it feels like from real experience... So deplete your glycogen stores, create muscle soreness, set some scary goals, do some hill reps until you puke, try to put on some muscle mass or be genuinely experimental with a whole array of different preparation methods, 
All of these experiences will give you real depth of empathy with full-time elite training. Thirdly, begin to advise others. And you must do this early in your studies. There's nothing quite like feeling the weight of responsibility of guiding others, penning a training program, advising non-training interventions. When someone is looking for you to help them improve, it should intensify your own questioning of the basic tenets, principles and knowledge and concepts that you've been learning about. And finally, with unrelenting humility, patience and persistence, carve out an opportunity to influence a formalised training programme, whether that's Telford Hockey Club, Inverness Gymnastics Club, Sporting Indoor Bowls Club, Abba Dovey Race Walking Club. I wrote these down. I don't know where I got them from. Make the approach. You will need to be hugely deferent to make a breakthrough of acceptance. Do not book a trumpet fanfare to celebrate your entrance. I have knowledge from a book. I am therefore your saviour. That type of approach. Instead, go along, knock on the door, Ask politely to speak to a coach when they have a moment, not when they're busy. Tell them who you are and what you are studying. But importantly, ask if you can help. Can you help with stopwatch timings, session setup, putting the mats out, getting the lane ropes organised, whatever it might be. Whilst you're doing this, ask if you can learn about the coach's programme, why they're doing what they're doing. What's the goal that they're working towards? Asking well-chosen, well-thought-out questions along the way. If, but only if they trust you, will they ever turn around and ask you, so this sports science stuff you've learnt about, have you actually read anything that real coaches can use? Then, with the preparation of thousands of hours of selective thought, reading, critique, observation, prioritisation and rehearsed pitching, you will get to air your idea your suggestion or your intervention. That's the point that you become an applied sports scientist. No longer languishing and just remembering an article's conclusion, you are now an end user of that knowledge. You are actually developing know-how. But it won't stop there. The coach or athlete might reject your idea. They might scoff at your best suggestion. That is where you need to be able to reflect and react. Maybe now is not the time. Maybe you didn't use the right words. Maybe your scrunched up body language with rising intonation of doubt suggested you weren't convinced either. So that's the point you will need to reflect. Learn fast, adapt and set new standards for yourself. If you don't, you'll get stuck at that level. And most people do. That's the importance of reflective practice. Finally, finally, begin to think about setting up your own consultancies. You begin to progress through your studies. This is a new addition to the blog and is included due to the rise of the gig economy, which I think is coming like a tidal wave, which on one hand, it brings uncertainty for your employment. But at the same time, self-employment is on the rise. And so in a similar ilk, you can ready yourself for the future and learn the ropes of self-employed consultancy and join the many who are taking responsibility for their prospects and setting up a side hustle. So go for it. Get out there. Illuminate your learning. I don't expect for a moment you will enroll in a photography course and learn all about the camera, its inner workings, the best shutter speeds for different conditions and never go out there and take a photograph. So you'll need to get up early and get the best light and think carefully about what picture is you want to take. Wait for the perfect moment to capture your image and then be your worst critic about what you'll need to do to be better tomorrow. 
so is the same in performance sciences. Some say there ain't enough opportunities, or they're right, so go and get one before they're all gone. Yours sincerely, Steve Ingham. That was the letter to the 15,000. In, in a nutshell, this was very much all about starting to assemble your thoughts. That was the importance of debating and discussing with other people. So you assemble your thoughts. One of the problems that graduates have is that they don't necessarily know what they know. And actually filtering the things up to the top of their minds uh, thinking, what are you going to take out of that course? What are the big principles that you think you're going to refer to on a day-to-day basis? And highlighting those, trialing those and applying them. It is absolutely vital that you get work experience at this foundation stage, even at undergraduate. And I would prioritise self-generated work experience, not just shadowing experience. Uh, We're developing some materials around this. You can go on supportingchampions.co.uk and look at a blog that I've recently written about acquiring work experience. We're also generating some free guides to give you the kind of the lowdown, how to secure some of those work experience opportunities. Have a look into those uh, free guides. We've also got upcoming webinars that we're going to be launching. We've got some free ones if you just want to raise your awareness and prime your knowledge and thinking around this area. Also, if you really want to dig deeper and just fast track your development in this particular area. The other thing that you could do, you could also buy a How to Support Champion. That's always a good read. So on to the next level. And this is about as you graduate. And this is about the the hurdles that people will face as they're starting to go out into the job market. Okay, so the biggest problem here is in applying for jobs, is that people do not take enough time to develop their application specific to the job that they're going for. They also don't differentiate themselves. And so you need a little bit of a time machine here of almost imagining what your CV and job application is going to look like in advance um, and thinking, these are the things I need to acquire to differentiate myself. I've got three fundamentals that I'll skip through. CV, letter and online presence are critical because most jobs get hundreds of applications and you have to grab attention really quickly. You have to put the most important information up at the right moment because most job applications get read for less than 30 seconds because of the volume of of applications. You have to make sure that you, you jump out. So the first way to avoid jumping out or that you get deselected is that your CV is riddled with errors, Uh, simple grammatical errors, overuse of capital letters. You've got to apply a combination of rigour and quality assurance to your written work, but you've also got to make sure that you're creating a compelling case. So CVs quickly then. Um, You need to put the the most important qualifications at the top. So they will be the highest level of qualification. So here's my top tip. So if you've got a PhD, you don't need to be putting all your GCSE results, probably don't need to be putting an awful lot about your A-level results. And the important thing here is that you're just putting the most important things up front because that front page has to impress upon the employer 
is that you have got the relevant work experience. So what you don't want to be doing is bulking out all of your first page with lots of transcripts about modules sat and and I got this for my second year project, whatever it might be. So prioritise your qualifications because then you need to highlight this is the most critical part of your CV is the relevant work experience that you've got. It's relevant work experience. So if you're applying for a job with one of the best sports teams in the world, it might not help that you've spent some time working in an aquarium shop. But if that's the most relevant work experience, then you've got a problem relevant work experience. And if you haven't got it, you need to go and get it. That's the critical aspects of this. Don't fill this up with jobs which don't necessarily map to the same skill set that you need. So that's the most important part. That's the bit that's going to get you the job. The other aspect that a lot of employers will look for is is some sort of section about uh, personal experience. And this is a chance to not necessarily show off that you're grade eight guitar, but it shows that you have some diligence, that you've gone the extra mile, that you have connected with people, other ways in which you could demonstrate your ability to graft something, but also to connect with other people. So if you have done Duke of Edinburgh, fantastic. Those are the sorts of things. But if you have developed your own particular project, if you set up your own gym, or if you've uh, been involved in a community project, if you've volunteered for Parkrun, that's the place to put that sort of experience. And that will leap off the page and and that will show that you are somebody, yeah, you're likely to be able to to commit to a responsibility for a, for an employer. So a, a quick overview of letters. I would suggest the following format is a, is a bulletproof approach. The first paragraph, a couple of sentences, no more. It needs to be punchy, crisp explanation as to why you are the best person for the job. Now, if you cannot complete that challenge, you are probably not well equipped to apply for the job that leads me on to a little tangent is that you shouldn't necessarily be applying for jobs that you're not equipped to do uh, and we, we're actually going to generate a, uh, a webinar specifically for this particular dynamic but often job descriptions are almost like the perfect person and sometimes you might be thinking well I haven't got all of those skills and and uh, experiences but you might be close and that might be worth you uh, ex- uh, chucking your hat in the ring. We'll expand on that on the webinar. So please do sign up and if you're interested in in that particular dynamic. So first paragraph, punchy explanation why you're the f- best person. Next paragraph, a more substantial section on the work experience that you have and the skills that you have. Don't bang on about your studies because most people will have the same sort of studying-based experience. That's the bit where you need to convince people, I can do this job because I've done something similar before. And that's what employers are looking for. Can this person do the job now? Not whether they've got the prospects for it. Can they do it now? And the third paragraph should be an explanation of how you have demonstrated being a team player and how you have influenced other people or influenced change. And once again, this is the section where you get to talk about the amazing things that you have done, but also how you've contributed to this world. And then I would finish up with another enthusiastic campaign to say that you're passionate about this, this work 
and you're the person for the job. The third aspect here is online presence. If you are online and have a social media presence, then I would say that's probably fair game for somebody to look you up before they start employing you or interviewing you. I think there are a couple of top tips for this particular area for recruitment. You need to find your voice and that will take some practice. What is it that you are interested in? What are you passionate about and how are you sharing those? You also need to start thinking. So that could be a particular article that you've read or a particular book that you've found inspirational or a conversation that you've had that you've you've taken some learning from and find that voice and put it out there. You also need to be thinking about what is the platform doing for you? So LinkedIn tends to be a very much professional platform. There's a bit of egotistical chest puffing on that. It's much more of a professional standing. Uh, Facebook's much more family, much more network, much more socially um, connected. Twitter tends to be somewhere in the middle where it's, it's a blend of this is of interest to you, whether that is something that you've experienced or whether that's some research or some uh, some event that you've gone to. You've got to be thinking about what's the platform actually doing for me and how do I make sure that I am curating the right type of content that reflect me, what I can do, what my values are and how I might want to be projecting myself. I won't go into job interviews today. That's a big topic for another time. And again, this whole area of CV development, letter, online presence, interviewing, we're going to create some webinars for you. So have a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash webinars. The other thing that if you really want to throw yourself into this is that we're providing some graduate coaching at the moment. That might be of interest to people who, who just want to accelerate that conversation and, and have a review, have a uh, get some direction. I'm actually offering at the moment a free 25-minute coaching consultation that you can book online. Uh, So have a look at the website or we'll put the links into the show notes that you can start to access that. Right, final section then is when you've actually got the job. Uh, And the problem here is that things suddenly start to get really complicated now that you're working. Before, studying is all about actually reducing things down so to, we know this, to a level of probability. But now things start to get messy. The first few days of work can be really tiring. You're soaking up the environment, meeting lots of different people. You'll be sensing a different type of energy, picking up all sorts of cultural cues, as well as the, the job that you're actually there to do. So work is much more complicated than studying. Um, It's imperfect. There's so many different moving parts. It's utterly unique. Whatever job you do, whether you're replacing somebody or whether it's a new job, it is utterly unique. And the main reason for that is that the job might have existed, but you're now in that job and you're unique. And so you, within that imperfect, fast-moving, pressured environment means that you're going to have to skill up really quickly. The main way that we've tended to work with people uh, to get a a good understanding of how they work is through the Spotlight tool. It's like a performance profiling tool which helps people understand how do I operate on a day-to-day basis, but also how do I perform under pressure? And this is a really good one at creating self-awareness really quickly. If that's something you want some support with, um, we're happy to to help you. My top tips here for you to be effective quickly are, first of all, ask for clarity. 
ask for clarity about what is expected of you. So you'll have a job description. There'll be a whole list of things, roles and responsibilities that you're now asked to do. But you should ask your boss, what is the most important? What's the real priority? What should be you should be putting your efforts and energies into? Ask what will success look like? One of the often a, a job interview question is, you know, how will you know you've succeeded in the role? Or ask them because they'll have a much better idea about the job demand and responsibility than you will in the early stages of that first phase of your career. So get clarity, ask people, uh, what is it you're required to do? And part of that is, what is it that we are all working to? What's the shared goal? Not just my goal, but what is the, the collective responsibility and the shared purpose that I need to be aligned to? And that's very much about being a team player and stepping into that collective um, effort. My second tip would be about expanding your network. So you'll be meeting and immersing yourself into a team of people. That's and that's wonderful. But this is about getting in touch with people that you think might be to help you achieve success in your role. So be brave and contact people, whether it's email or phone. Find a way to reach out to people if you think that they might be able to help your mission. The second one is about targeted CPD. A lot of CPD out there, uh, professional development opportunities, workshops and conferences. And we obviously host our conference, which is focused on finding out what it takes to create performance. But but a lot of CPD now is generic. And if you go to scientific conferences or leadership conferences, it's just, just general stuff. And you've got to be really selective because I think professional development budgets are really starting to tighten. Um, and so the amount that you might be able to invest if you're working for somebody, but also if you're working for yourself, those, the, you need to prioritise some professional development allocation that allows you to, to take the next step up. And that's about expanding your network, but also looking for uh, an edge, whether it's a perspective, whether it's a tool, whether it's a piece of knowledge that can really help you get good quickly. The last thing I would say is find a coach and find a mentor, somebody that can guide you because you will mis- you will make mistakes early on in your career. And what you want to do is just, you don't want to avoid making mistakes. What you want to do is make sure that you're learning quickly from it. And so individual self-reflection is critical, but actually having somebody else that can guide you and help you reflect along that journey is also really important. So find a coach, find a mentor. Like I say, we're offering some graduate coaching and professional coaching. And if that's something that you want us to do, then we'd be more than happy to do that for you. But it doesn't have to be us. Find somebody that's close to you, that you can connect with online, that you respect their opinion, that can stretch your thinking and and give you honest feedback about where you're at to move forward. So there you go, folks. There's some some rants from me about different perspectives about developing the next generation of performance people. If you are one of those people, then I urge you to take action. That world of work that I talk about is it's it's messy, it's ambiguous, it's fast moving, and it's pressured. You will be in a position at your studies as you transition out of your studies and early career that you'll be entrenched in what you know not necessarily how you can make that knowledge work for you it's no wonder that universities don't teach this not only have they got other pressures but this is a 
complex area to navigate through. But the trouble is for you is that the gap is widening. And so you have to act and take ownership for it. You can't be reliant upon these traditional organisations providing you with all of the skills that you need. And that's why we're going to be spending the next few months particularly driving at supporting the next generation of performance people. And so if you're a student or if you're just transitioning or if you're just taking up those those early roles, uh, we've got lots lined up for you this month. So there's the blog material that you can tap into. That'll be coming out with our newsletter if you're a subscriber. Uh, we've got a, n- a number of free guides that we'll be launching. The first one's been launched around acquiring work experience. The next one is going to be on the controversial area of unpaid internships and what the pros and cons of those might be. The next one after that will be about the top five investments that you need if you're setting yourself up as a professional. So lots of those uh, coming up. So we've got loads lined up for you. If you're a student at the moment or if you know of somebody that's that's in this sort of situation or if you want to be part of what we're trying to support and champion and forward, better equipped and skilled professionals of the future, then please do share this with your networks. So there we go, folks. That's enough from me for now. We'll be going back to our normal format next time where we'll be talking to Trent Stellingworth, performance nutritionist at the Canadian Sports Institute. So I look forward to sharing that. In the meantime, if you'd like to follow us online, then you can do on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. We are on Instagram, uh, Facebook, support, look up supporting champions. 